Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Everybody to the next reel. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hello, everybody. And we spoil movies, but not today. Not today. <laughs> we got a very special episode. This is exciting for me. 
Is it? It is. Why it is, is it exciting for you, Andy? Well, because it's all part of my guilty pleasure. So I, <laughs> I get extra guilt and extra pleasure <laughs> from from this uh, upcoming conversation we're about to have. This is uh, fantastic. So we did, uh, uh, if you are a regular listener to the show, you know that a few weeks back we did our Guilty Pleasure series and we did uh, Volunteers, 1985, directed by Nicholas Meyer as Andy's Guilty Pleasure. That movie uh, was written by writing team Ken Levine and David Isaacs. And um, I, I, th- I listened to the show again, Andy, and we did not talk about these guys enough. No, we didn't. You noted that too? I did note that. That, yes. was, my, uh, that was my guilty regret. Uh, that we we did not talk about these guys enough because not only did they write this they are uh, I and I, I it's not hyperbolic to say this they are legends uh, in certainly in television writing and uh, have been together for 40 years uh, writing things like mash and Mary and cheers my goodness and Frasier and and so on and so on and so on they've been around forever. And it was Ken Levine who reached out to us after writing a post on his blog by kenlevine.blogspot.com, uh, and we'll put a link to his post in our show notes, uh, about how he was a guilty pleasure, and then he proceeded to talk about you know, our review of his film. <laughs> <laughs> totally called us out. Uh, and then I, you know, I don't know what's uh, what got him to do it. He reached out to us directly, and uh, and here he is. Uh, he is on the show, and this is why this is Andy's big Andy's big day. It's your big break. I'm excited. This could be it. So we have this conversation with with Ken Levine, and I will say, halfway through the conversation, uh, Skype uh, decides that Ken is not worthy, and. Uh, crashes not only his Skype, but his entire computer is is dead. And so we switch to phone. And so that's halfway through. The connection with Ken changes dramatically. And the conversation itself maybe <laughs> have moved on to a different <laughs> subject. I don't know. It, we'll try to make it kind of an elegant transition. But uh, anyway, that's what happens halfway through. The audio changes. We move to the telephone for him. Uh, but I think he still sounds okay. Yeah, I right. think... It, it, the message is there. The message, the message is, there. is there. The message yes. is there. All right. Uh, so uh, with our special thanks to Ken Levine, here is our conversation on volunteers and his legacy in television. Ken, welcome to the next reel. Thank you very much, guys. I'm happy to be able to uh, defend volunteers, and maybe you can have me back to defend Mannequin 2. <laughs> that list may, that as one of your guilty pleasures. That, that may be uh, on the uh, list. That may be on the list. <laughs> you know, since we talked about volunteers, we talked about our conversation of volunteers, you mentioned us on the blog. Can we start there? What did we get wrong? Well, I think you got a lot of it right. Um, I think there were elements of volunteers that that didn't work but not for the reasons that you guys stated uh i'm I'm not here just to tell you you guys are crazy it was a fantastic movie uh i think a lot of it works and and i'll be honest i hadn't seen it in years i'd seen like bits and pieces of it when i would channel surf and come across it on hbo but one night i was sitting there and I had nothing to do and I pulled out my DVD and I put it on. I figure, you know what, if I get bored, I'll turn it off. And um, and I wound up actually liking the movie now more than I did when it came out. And maybe it's just that the bar has been lowered, but uh, <laughs> it, you know, it kind of hangs together and that there's a, a story and there's more than just Pratt Falls and... Uh, and sex jokes, and uh, you know, it's it's a whole lot better than Vacation. Um, but that being said, uh, I think the big problem with Volunteers was that the tone just keeps shifting. That there'll be a scene in there where you see all of the villagers building the bridge, and it looks very realistic, very much like you're watching some National Geographic documentary. And then there'll be scenes where the characters are breaking the fourth wall and reading subtitles. 
And then there'll be these bizarre slapstick uh, scenes. So I, I think really part of the problem of the movie is that it just never felt as cohesive as it could have been. Well, maybe an interesting place to start the conversation is is uh, the beginnings of the script. I mean, how did how did this script come about, and and what were you guys aiming for when you were writing the script? Well, it's it's a good question, and it kind of uh, goes back to uh, what you guys were saying before. And that is that we were in television at the time. This was 1979. We wanted to get into features and we had been at MASH. Back in those days, uh, there was a big distinction between being a feature writer and being a television writer. Uh, Not like it is today where you can hop back and forth easily. Uh, Back then, the feature world really looked down on TV writers. And our agents tried to get us movie assignments, and she was coming up completely empty, and they were saying, well, we have to see a screenplay that they wrote. And she would say, they've written MASH for four years. (laughs) Uh, Doesn't that sort of count as being able to write a single-camera movie style more so than just a a spec screenplay, nope, no one would hire us. So we wrote a spec screenplay, which was basically a comedic version of Kent State uh, back in in the 60s. So it was, we wanted to make sure that it didn't feel like just a sitcom, that the movie studios and producers couldn't just say, oh yeah, well, this is just, 120 page sitcom. So even though we knew that no one was going to make this movie, uh, at least it got us some meetings and it, it really got us some traction in the world of screenplays. And Walter Parks was uh, a young producer back then and met with us and had the basic idea for volunteers. It was based on an idea from a guy named Keith Critchlow. And all he really had was that a preppy who is in danger of getting the shit beaten out of him by gamblers uh, takes his roommate's spot and joins the Peace Corps. And you have the world's most selfish human being working at the Peace Corps back in 1962 when the Peace Corps was the rage and you had all of these real gung-ho, idealistic young people joining the Peace Corps. And that's pretty much all we had to go by. And from there, we, um, we wrote draft after draft after draft. And the tone kind of changed, actually. The first draft was, we always had the bridge. We came up with the idea of the bridge. And we made it, I'd say, more of a dramedy uh, originally. And it just kind of fell flat. And we all decided, you know what? Let's just really have some fun with this. And we came up with the idea of uh, of the communists and brainwashing Tom Tuttle from Tacoma and uh, and turning it more into a comedy. And we did that and that came a long way and we then were able to set up the movie at MGM and they brought in uh, Carl Gottlieb to direct and then he dropped out and they brought in James Comack to direct. Uh, James Comack was the writer who did Welcome Back, Cotter, and, and that sort of thing. Mm. And, yeah. um, and he brought in his own writer who uh, did a pass on the script, and it was so atrocious that it got the project thrown into turnaround. And the producer, Walter Parks, uh, then was able to get it to 
uh, HBO TriStar, but went back to our script, just threw out that other draft completely. There's not a comma of that other draft in the script. What was his direction? Do you remember what do you remember what changed so much about it? It just made it a real low class, vile, sort of X-rated romp. Hmm. You know, with just a lot of real tasteless jokes and turds in the punch bowl and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, it's your typical Hollywood yeah. story of how these movies evolve. And um, so we went back and did all of the, the rewrites and we got Nick Meyer to direct it. And Nick was coming off of uh, Star Trek Two. She did a fantastic job. Uh, and he had also done Time After Time, which is a great movie. Um, and so we were we were excited. And to his credit, uh, although he himself is an excellent writer, uh, Nick really worked with us and really kept our draft of the script. And then it came time for casting, and we were asked who we thought would be good. And when we wrote the script originally, we're now talking, it's like 1984, beginning of 1985. And when we first wrote the script in 1980, we thought, you know who would be good? There's this guy on a TV show called Bosom Buddies named Tom Hanks. <laughs> and we said, you know, he really kind of has the qualities that were sort of looking for here it, it would have been 1970 we would have said bill murray but at this point you know bill murray went from looking like he was 21 years old to 50 over a weekend <laughs> yeah, and he's been there that, since then right <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how that that happened uh but um we like the idea of of tom hanks at the time we were also at the same agency as tom hanks so they got him a copy of the script, and Tom really liked it. But again, in 1980, no one is going to hire Tom Hanks to do a uh, movie, star in a movie. I mean, he's like a number two guy on a TV series that was hanging by a thread. So these years go by, and now Tom is in Bachelor Party, and he does Splash, which is a big hit, and all of a sudden... He is offered all kinds of comedy projects and he reads them and rejects them one after the other. And he says to his agent, you know, there was a screenplay I read years ago and I don't remember the name of it or who wrote it, but it was about this preppy asshole who joins the Peace Corps. And I remember it was really funny. And the agent said, well, that's going to be really like trying to find a needle in a haystack, but I'll see what we could do. And as luck would have it, and this sounds completely amazing, but it's true. As luck would have it, the studio that day, like an hour later, called the agent and said, we have a movie that we would like Tom to consider he said, what's it about? He said, it's called Volunteers. It's about a preppy asshole who joins the Peace Corps. <laughs> and the agent says, all right, you know, messenger it to him right now. And then he, of course, calls Tom and says, okay, I worked on it. I, uh, I <laughs> so, so Tom got sent the script at like 4.30 in the afternoon. And I get a call at 5.30 saying he's in. Wow. And what happened was Tom picked up the script and he opened it up to a page in the middle and he saw a joke that he recognized and said, yep, this is the script. And that was it. And that's how we got Tom Hanks literally in in an hour to sign on for the movie. What was going on in these five years? Like what precipitated the studio to call the agent five years later if they'd already kind of if if you know we know peter scolari is like spiking his punch in 1980 but once we got nick meyer on board uh hbo silver screen tristar i don't know all these, they um 
they greenlit the film. So it was only when they greenlit the film in 19, the beginning of 1985 that they, um, they then went out to Tom. Yeah. Before that, it was just directors and drafts and turnaround and things like that. And did they have anyone else in mind for Tom Tuttle? Because the script, he's not written at all like John Candy. He's totally, totally tall, skinny guy sort of the guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and they thought, well, what about getting John Candy? Because, again, Candy and Hanks had such a great chemistry when they worked together in Splash. And they asked us about it, and we said, well, it's sort of a different approach, but we're big John Candy fans. And we said, we'll adjust the script to fit it if need be. And they were able to get John Candy. And we met with John Candy, and he said, look, I love this. Don't change a word. And we didn't. <laughs> There's not a, a word that was not in our original draft, even with him as this wiry skinny little weasel guy uh and john candy just kind of brought his own uh quality to it and quite frankly made it a much funnier character than i think it was on paper yeah he absolutely does he's uh brilliant in the film he's uh one of those actors that uh, I think we all miss quite a bit. He was iconic, and that was one of my. That actually ended up being one of my uh, challenges with the film. Is I found myself really lamenting that I didn't get more of that uh, of the Tom Hanks John Candy uh, stuff. Like that. That is just. It's when it's happening on screen, it is perfect. It is just perfect. Their airplane introduction is just perfect. Uh, how do you make those like how do you make those tough decisions like you know you end up having these two characters that work so well together I can imagine you're sitting there you know trying to figure out how to get that balance just right um, what's that look like again I'm used to television and in television where if we have a, a new TV series and you have a character who is just a supporting character but you can see that he's really scoring with the audience. You know, if you have someone who is the Fonz or, you know, Michael J. Fox on, on Family Ties or Urkel, um, you know, what we would tend to do is write more towards them and say exactly what you're saying. Like, you know, these scenes really, really are happening. Uh, we were not on uh, the set. They were filming the movie in uh, Mexico, and at the time, uh, David and I were back in L.A. We were writing a pilot for Mary Tyler Moore, and we were rewriting Jewel of the Nile for Michael Douglas. So we weren't there, but I think if we were there and we were watching the dailies, that we probably would have said the exact same thing, and we would have said to Nick, look, we got to write some more scenes to put them together because you're right. Those, those scenes are terrific and I wish there were more of them. That speaks really interestingly to just the relationship uh, of the writer and the director in filmmaking. And it seems like there is such strength to um, having the writers around to catch those sorts of moments. And it, I mean, sometimes you hear it happening in, in feature films, but not, as often as TV, uh, what do you think the, the, the reason is for that between those two different uh, mediums? Film is definitely a director's medium, and the director is king on a film. And the writer is probably right below craft services guy <laughs> on the food chain, as opposed Yikes. to television, which is writer-driven. And the executive producers, the showrunners of television series, all are writers. And the directors are pretty much hired to fulfill their vision. In fact, there are tone meetings with directors where the showrunner will go through the script and tell the director what he wants in this scene, what he wants in that scene. Um, but in screenplays, uh, no. Uh, we are very fortunate that we had a director who was willing to include us in the process, 
was uh, not just hiring writers on the fly to change things. Um, and, and that's really kind of rare, actually. It's one of the reasons why writers become directors is <laughs> to finally have some uh, say in their material. I remember once a Writers Guild meeting just before one of our many strikes, and it was a full membership meeting, and there were 4,000 people in the Hollywood Palladium or whatever, and Larry Gelbart got up to speak, and he said, everyone in this room at one time or another, we'll rewrite everyone else in this room. <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably true. Well, that was my, uh, that was a question. You know, you mentioned uh, Jewel of the Nile. What other uh, credits uh, or, or non-credits do we not know about from uh, you and, and, and you and David? We did uh, a major amount of work on Mannequin, the first Mannequin. Uh-huh. I, is the, I assume that's how you got Mannequin 2. When they decided to make Mannequin 2, David Beagleman uh, called us up and kind of begrudgingly said, well, uh, for luck, we'll bring you back for Mannequin 2. And we said, yeah, well, for luck, you're going to pay us a lot more money for Mannequin 2. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And somehow, for reasons I don't quite understand, uh, we got shared writing credit and when they proposed it we called our agent and said do we even want this this is a mannequin too this is not very good and he said yeah you do because you'll get royalties if your name is attached so um so we did so our name is attached we've made 11 cents <laughs> that was a yeah. So that was uh, ninety one, really, when the the big money royalties started pouring into exactly. this thing. Right? Yeah, we right. were we were in the sweet spot. You really were oh, in the God. zone, baby. I feel bad for all those kids doing movies today. <laughs> uh, well, let's say yes. Take a step back a, a little bit to your um, to your first uh, your first gig. Well, to back up in terms of how I met my partner. Um, I was in an Armed Forces Radio Reserve Unit. Uh, my draft number was four, which meant I would have been drafted any second the minute uh, my student deferment was canceled. So I got into an Armed Forces Radio Reserve Unit, and I bumped into David, who was in the same unit. We were in summer camp at Fort Carson, Colorado. And he was reading the biography of George S. Kaufman, the playwright, who's one of my idols, Kaufman and Hart, great playwrights. And so we started talking, and we both kind of had desires to become writers. I was a disc jockey bouncing around the country um, trying to be Howard Stern before Howard Stern. And David was in L.A. schlepping film cans, a uh, long since obsolete department um, for ABC, and uh, we we thought, well, it'd be kind of fun. We both loved Woody Allen and Mel Brooks and uh, thought, man, it would be great to become writers. Then I promptly got fired from San Bernardino and moved back home to Los Angeles, uh, living with my parents while I was sending out more tapes to uh, get more rejections from radio stations. And I called David and said, hey, you want to get together and try writing something? Neither of us even knew what a script looked like. I had to go to a bookstore in Hollywood and get a copy of an <laughs> odd couple TV script to see what the format was. Interior Madison Apartment Day. I didn't even know that. So, um, so we did that. We wrote a pilot about... Uh, two kids in college, because that was the sum total of our life experience at the time. We were both 23. And it didn't go. It would have cost billions of dollars to make in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we had no outline. We didn't know We didn't know jack shit about what we were doing. Um, and then a writer I had met told me that in order to break in, you have to write a spec script from an existing series. So we thought, you know, let's see if we can break into TV as opposed to movies. Since we don't know shit, it might be easier to master a 40-page script than a 120-page script. And at the time, 
it was really a golden age of TV sitcoms. You had All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore Show, MASH, Bob Newhart Show, Maud, Odd Couple, on and on. It was really just like now is a golden age for TV drama. Back then, it was TV comedy in the early 70s. So we decided that we would write a spec Mary Tyler Moore show. And we decided to study the Mary Tyler Moore show. Fortunately, neither of us had a social life. Uh, yeah. If well, I had gotten what luck, I never would have become a writer. Uh, and we would get together every Saturday night because the Mary Tyler Moore show was on CBS Saturday nights at nine. We would get together. I would hold a silver dollar microphone up to the speaker. We would make a cassette recording of the show. This was even before videotape. This is when dinosaurs ruled the earth. <laughs> and um, then we would write an outline based on the show. And we would do that week after week after week until we started discovering the patterns and seeing how they put these stories together. How long How long did that take you, week after week? What is that? Well, we did about eight weeks, probably, like two months. Then we wrote our spec Mary Tyler Moore show, and we sent it in, and they got, they rejected us. We wrote a spec Rhoda, and they rejected us. But, and here's where luck comes into it, one day my mom is playing golf with the story editor of the Jeffersons. And of course, being a good Jewish mother, she says, oh, my son is a great writer. And he's like, oh, Christ. And he said, have him get in touch. Have him send me something to read. So I sent the Mary Tyler Moore show to him and he called back and really liked it and invited us to come in and pitch story ideas to the Jeffersons. So we did. We went in and we pitched story ideas, and they liked one and took it to the producers, and the producers liked it, and they bought it. And so that was our first um, assignment. Did what hit the screen uh, resemble what uh, what you had put on the page? Not a word. <laughs> no. There was actually, I think, one line of ours still in the taping, and that got edited out. Uh, no, they changed, but they told us beforehand that that's what they do, that they change a lot of everybody's work. They said, if Neil Simon wrote a script, we would change a lot of it. We're just happy to have the assignment. So we were like, yeah, we don't care. We don't care. Fine. Whatever. What business did you guys have writing this show for the Jeffersons? Did you ever think about that? Like where, what? How do you, how do you make a story that really fits in the Jeffersons? Do you ever think about the whole the questions of race and you know what do we know about this? You know how, how does this fit into our lifestyle? Where how did, did that come into your mind at all? Well, all of the other writers were white at the time, so um, no, uh, you know, and you're writing characters and you're writing attitude, so um, attitude attitude is blind. Yeah, yeah. So no, that that really didn't seem to be a um, a big issue for us. Of course, who who knew how how well we did? So. Well, and then and then you went on to Mash, which with the, your background, I mean, at least you had some military background. So I mean, that seemed to be something more in line with what you guys uh, knew, and you spent quite a bit of time there. Yes, we were much more comfortable at Mash. Um, we were there for four years, and we rose to um, to be the head writers. And what a show to be a part of. It's one of the classic, iconic American shows. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we knew at the time that it was special and that it was unique and certainly that it was popular. But honestly speaking, I never thought that it would become this iconic show that 30 years from now, it would still be revered and... Um, you know, people would still be watching it. I think we probably would have been paralyzed writing the show if we knew that, uh, you know, every episode is going to be deemed as a classic. And, you know, uh, so we better, you know, do our best to make sure it lives up to, 
you know, an American classic. No, we just were looking for jokes and good stories and um, things that we could do to uh, get us out at a decent time each night. It's a it, it's an interesting thing that you say that because you know of course that leads me to think about I mean, you mentioned the the uh, sort of golden age of of sitcom right uh, the this era in the seventies but you were also really uh, a, a central part of the next golden age of sitcoms I mean leading into must see TV that was. Uh, you know, there wasn't a sitcom on television leading out of Cheers into Frasier uh, and, you know, NBC's dominance of the the sitcom uh, kind of airwaves that that uh, that, you know, that you would get to be a part of two of those incredible rises um, is is pretty amazing. Uh, any sense while you were in it? That you were part of something special, particularly as you're you're building up into in Cheers and and leading into Frasier. I I have to say, you know, people talk about uh, looking back, going, oh, those were the good old days. We didn't appreciate them at the time, but I can honestly say that as I was doing Cheers and Frasier, that I was thinking to myself, wow, how lucky am I that I'm not on Wester that, you know, I'm on uh, on a great show like Cheers. And I loved writing the show, and I loved the people that, that I worked with. And so uh, I, I knew at the time that it was uh, a special experience and uh, enjoyed every minute of it. All right, so let's. You, you mentioned earlier that you wanted to make a transition into features, that you and David had, had decided you wanted to make a, a jump into features. What did that conversation look like, and, and how, how <laughs> I, I don't know, how did it go? <laughs> well, again, we started out wanting to be filmmakers. Uh, we wanted to be the next Woody Allen or um, Mel Brooks. So um, it was always in the back of our minds that we wanted to uh, move on to the screenplays. And we had done our time on MASH, and then we got a development deal, which meant we got paid a, a lot of money to come up with TV pilots. But that doesn't take your full year and you know you you know you come up with a pilot idea and you run it by the studio and it's may and the studio says great so they'll be opening their doors listening to new ideas the first week of august so now you got like a few months what are you going to do and so we took that opportunity uh like i said when it was clear we were not going to get a script uh, a screenplay until we wrote a, a spec. So we took the time and wrote a spec. So you so you did your spec, which uh, was volunteers, and then um... no, no, our spec, our spec was the script about uh, Kent State. The oh, that's right, the... Kent State. Yeah, right, right, right. There was that one, and that right. led to working on that led to, that led to volunteers. Yes, after volunteers, we got wrapped up in, in television, uh, cheers came along. And, uh, so we, we kind of went back into television during that period where volunteers was kind of bouncing around. And then you, you only did a few other features, uh, at least that were made. Um, you ended up, it looks like critical condition and then mannequin on the move. I mean, was, was, did you write other features that just never got off the ground? We, we had, um, for a while, uh, a real nice career as um, as rewrite guys coming in doing uh, two three weeks on on scripts and, um, and and most of them didn't get made but but we got paid and uh, we rewrote a couple of scripts uh, we rewrote uh, a screenplay I remember that Paul Rudnick had written. Um, so we we did a few of those, and we did some originals that were in um, various stages of development hell. We came very <laughs> close on one, and it's the old story. Uh, you know, the regime changes, 
and the new people come in and they just toss out everything that was in development before. But, um, yeah, we had a, a screenplay that was very close to getting made when David Putnam was running Columbia. And then he left and they brought in Don Steele and that was the end of that. And, and were they all with David Isaacs? Were you two always working together on everything? Um, no. Most of the things we we wrote together. Um, then I went off and did baseball. And uh, David wanted to get a screenplay assignment and faced the same problem where producers said, well, what has he done on his own? And so uh, David and I each decided to write a spec screenplay just so that we would have that available. And uh, and that's kind of fun. I've written a couple of spec screenplays um, on my own. I, I sold one uh, to Interscope, a couple that I haven't sold. Um, I wrote a screenplay with Robin Schiff that we sold to MGM. Um, we did a television series called Almost Perfect in the mid-90s on CBS with Nancy Travis and David Isaacs and Robin Schiff and I, the three of us, uh, were the, the co-creators and showrunners of that show. So um, I worked with Robin on, on a movie, and I've done um, uh, a number of plays on my own. I had a play last year at the Falcon Theater in Los Angeles and uh, working on another play. And so I've, I've done things on my own, written a few books on my own. We see those books. When you talk about your, when you think about your experience working with a writing partner, you know, I think about our, our audience. We've got a number of, of people who listen to this show who are writers, who are, you know, trying to get their, um, you know, their career off the ground. Can you talk a little bit about the who experience? Who listen to this nonsense? There what? you go. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about your your experience working with a writing partner and the, the um, you know, and I, I don't mean to be assumptive here, but the value you get from it? Uh, it's really helpful, especially in comedy, to have somebody whose opinions you really value uh, being there to to sort of bounce things off of. And um, I have great respect for uh, my partner David's uh, comic sense. And so, you know, you pitch a joke and you don't know necessarily if it's really funny or not. And it helps to have somebody else go, yeah, that's pretty good. Or I think we could do better. Or, uh, you know, I like that area. And, you know, a lot of times people will say to us, um, oh, I, that joke was yours. I could just tell it was yours. And, and I'd say, I, I don't remember. And it sounds like I'm being coy. But the truth is that a lot of times one of us will pitch a joke and the other will change the wording, uh, will, you know, play with it a little bit. And then we go back and forth. And so by the time the joke is actually on screen, um, you really don't remember whose joke it was because both of you worked on it. Um, it's, it's very helpful in the sense that, um, you know, you can get locked into one way of thinking and you're trying to solve a story problem, but you keep butting heads with the same wall. And sometimes it's helpful to have uh, another voice go, well, wait a minute. What if you go in this direction? What if you go down this path instead? And it kind of frees you up a little bit. Um, also, you know, writing is a very lonely endeavor and it's nice to have somebody who you can share it with, someone you can go to lunch with. And like I say, the great thing about having a writing partner is if your car is in the shop, you always have a ride. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing David and I uh, started doing, we always write head to head. We're always in the room together when we write, but, uh, as a as an exercise, once a season, we would take a script assignment, and I would take one act, and David would take the other act, and we would write them separately, and then we would put the two acts together and rewrite them together. 
but it gave each of us the confidence of knowing that we can write on our own if we had to. So our decision to be a partnership was out of choice, not dependence. It's not like one of the partners says, yeah, I know I'm late every day, but I'm the funny one. You know, we're, we're partners because we feel that the, um, that the sum total of our collective contribution, uh, is better than each of us individually. And, um, and we've stayed partners for many, many years. 42. Now, how does that work when you guys are working together with other writers in writing rooms? Or or are you ever really in the writing rooms working on like all the rewrites for the shows? Everybody is kind of an individual because you know, you're, you have uh, seven writing partners yeah. that afternoon. Have you, have you seen a big change in the writing rooms from your early days to today? They've gotten much larger. Uh, in the early days, it was much, much smaller. When we were doing MASH, David and I were the head writers. We had uh, a couple of writers who kind of helped us punch up and things, but David and I pretty much wrote the entire season. And uh, early on in Cheers, there were only four writers full-time, uh, Glenn and Les Charles and uh, David Isaacs and me. We were, we were it, and by the end of Cheers, uh, you had to come early to get a spot at the table. Amazing. That is amazing. I mean, just particularly, you know, as I was looking through some of your credits or watching some of the old episodes, just seeing your names bounce back and forth between every single episode. And and it's not something that I, uh, you're right, that I, I imagine now. And you see these interviews with the writing room. That's like, seems to be Vogue right now. You know, you get these, that, right, I think right. A&E has the writer's room and you see like Breaking Bad. It's like 11 people on the, uh, on the writing staff. These, or these even, th- these, you know, 30-minute shows that are 22-minute shows that have, you know, 10 people on the writing staff every single week. It's got to be chaos. You know, it is to a certain extent. Um, On the other hand, um, I'm happy that there are that many more opportunities for working writers and that many more writers are employed. So anything that uh, facilitates that, I think, is is a good thing. Um, personally, I don't think you need a huge staff. I would rather have a smaller staff with writers who, who all really participate. Do you, uh, do you find yourself watching a lot of television these days? No, I, you know, I'm a huge baseball fan. I watch a lot of baseball. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll watch, uh, you know, various dramas and things. Uh, I'll watch uh, Amy Schumer, which I like. Uh, I'll watch Broad City in terms of comedy. Uh, I used to be a big fan of Modern Family, and it just seems to be kind of the the same show over and over again. Um, Big Bang Theory, I think, has a lot of really funny jokes, but the stories are just ridiculous. Um, (laughs) uh, I love The Good Wife. I love The Good Wife and don't mind saying it. Uh, I, th- I think that's... that's <laughs> Loud that's, and proud, that's Ken. A, it's a great show. I mean, it's it's not your super hip in Zeitgeist show, but when you think that they have to turn out 22 quality hours a year, and a lot of these cable shows have a year and a half to turn out 13 Right. Um, I yeah. think what they do is is absolutely remarkable. Uh, I think you know, Andy, you had you wanted to bring it back around to volunteers, did you? Before as we get to wrapping up, one of the uh, the things that we had brought up on the show, and then you kind of were talking about, was just some of the the changes that were made uh, in the script. And I was curious about, uh, particularly the one that you brought up um, on your blog, was the the subtitle scene that you felt felt really uh, took us out of the film and, and kind of let, let the audience know that they didn't really have to worry about anything anymore because we've just kind of, you know, uh, you know, broken the fourth wall and now the characters on screen are reading subtitles and all of a sudden it's just kind of getting silly now. And you talked about um, you know other changes, or and I brought up on the podcast, you know the fact that they drive through the map, 
And as I read the, the shooting script, that wasn't even in the shooting script. So clearly there were changes all still going on after you guys had kind of left um, your role of, of uh, working as the writers on the script. What else ended up changing in the script, that, uh, with the changes that you may have liked or changes that you didn't like? At Chung Mi's lair at the end, there's like crazy chase scenes with with them getting in giant vases that go bouncing down the stairs and stuff like that that um, that was not not in our script. Um, let me go back to the, um, the 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 one sticking point for me, subtitles. which is that that <laughs> subtitle scene. And I, and I bring it up again because, you know, I maintain that it, it eliminated any suspense. And you guys said in your podcast, uh, well, there was no suspense to begin with. And well, I don't think we use that voice, really, to be uh, fair. No, no I, not that I, voice. Yeah. But, but you, did, you did say, you did say um, there, there was, was no suspense. And, and I disagree. Because we had set up that you have these innocent villagers and they're building a bridge and the communists plan to use the bridge to spread the word of, of communism and that the um, CIA and the, um, and the warlord was going to use this bridge to um, transport drugs. And, um, you know, you, you have this, this sleepy town, which is now going to be infiltrated by all of these factions. And what happens when the factions all come together? You know, and this was, remember, just at the shadow of, uh, you know, of Vietnam. And, you know, and, and, you, know, and you saw what happened to, uh, to villages and you know, townspeople, you know, all got trampled and killed. And so you go, well, wait a minute. That, you know, there's, there's a lot of suspense going on, you know. And and when uh, the the ending, uh, you know, comes along and here are the Chinese coming in one direction and the CIA and the warlords in the other, and it's all going to, you know, explode right in this little village. Um, to me, you got, you say, yeah, there's a certain amount of, of suspense. We were certainly building to something there. Um, it's building to um, a lot more of a, uh, of a suspenseful ending than Neighbors, or the hangover or bridesmaids. Uh, so I, I would disagree with you. And, and I think that, that, you know, the ending would have had a lot more impact if you, you didn't already think, well, no one's going to get hurt. No one's going to get injured. It's a silly movie. It's like, you know, a Bob Hope, uh, Bing Crosby road picture. Um, where you know the fish can talk and stuff, so there's there's no real jeopardy. Um, it eliminated the real jeopardy. Um, you might have viewed the movie very differently were it not for that moment. You know, I I want my comedy to be as funny as as anybody, but most important to me is the story. Most important to me is getting the audience involved in the story. And if one big laugh is going to take the audience out of that, I would rather sacrifice the big laugh. I think there's something very interesting about that. And, you know, I brought up on the on the show the fact that there's also that breaking of the fourth wall. Well, I see it as breaking the fourth wall when the car crashes through the map. And, you know, at, at I didn't love that either. Well, yeah, I, I didn't right, love that and either. I, and I thought it was very interesting when I read the script that it wasn't in the script. So to me, it's like, okay, so maybe Nicholas Meyer ended up putting that in there. And so maybe it is those elements that he dropped in there that, that lent to a lot more of that levity and did take away some of, the, uh, some of that tone that would have uh, made it feel a little more uh, uh, like there was that weight in the film, you know, that there were right. those. Uh, I, 
I think so, Andy. And I, you know, I guess I'm maybe I'm I have the benefit of uh, having ha- I had only seen the film the one time, and so um, I went back and I I watched again, and I realized, Ken, I think you're. <laughs> You know, who am I to say? I think you're exactly right. The reason that I made a comment about how there was no suspense is because as I'm watching it, I'm realizing now that they were actively removing the suspense as I was thinking about it. Like, it just erased that. It was like an inception level sort of erasing any potential suspense from my memory in real time. And I I, uh, and, and I can totally see, particularly knowing that the, you know, the map thing wasn't part of the original script, too. I can totally get your point there. And I think I would have, uh, I think I would have uh, seen particularly that climax of the film when all of the parties come together at the bridge differently. I, I get it. Yeah, I, I, I think you would have too. I, consider you know, me I swayed. I loved Nick Meyer, and he was he was great to work with, and we had we we certainly had this argument, and um and Nick, you know you know it's it's a different point of view, but Nick said to us, "How could you tell me to take out one of the biggest laughs of the movie? It's one of the biggest laughs of the movie." And, um, you know, again, it's a, it's a stylistic choice. Uh, if the joke didn't work, if, uh, if preview audiences didn't laugh, uh, it would have been gone in a second. But the fact that it got a big laugh, it was um, a hard argument for us to win. What's so interesting about that is that, you know, Nicholas Meyer doesn't have um much of a sort of reputation for big laugh movies no he doesn't and and so i you know i question that that stylistic sensibility at least uh, you know i get that i get going for the big laugh because the data supports it but data driven laughs uh you know don't typically um you know last it was a very tough it was a very tough movie to plot out because the first act you know, moves like a shot. And the last act, you know, we were building towards blowing up the bridge. And so there was a certain amount of, you know, at least initially uh, suspense of all of it coming together. But we had that real big chunk of what do you do in Thailand? What do you do in terms of, uh, you know, helping the villagers and meeting the different people and stuff. And, uh, you know, and that's where, where most of the work came in trying to, uh, to move that thing forward so that it, it just didn't feel like we were treading water for a half an hour. It's that act two hurdle that uh, every writer who's written a screenplay always struggles with, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, Chun Mi um, was not in the uh, the original draft. You know, we invented that. We invented the um, uh, the, the Chinese brainwashing, uh, John Candy. Uh, and I just remember, you know, as each draft uh, moved forward, uh, we would find new things. The uh, the poker game with all of the livestock and stuff like that was right. from a uh, a later a later draft. Well, I think it works. I love it. No, <laughs> hey, now you now you do. No, I hey, it's my guilty pleasure. I I admitted it on the show. I I love this movie, despite any problems it may have. I just love it. It's one of the easiest movies to watch for me, and I have a blast watching it every time. So I think you did a great job. I w- I will say this: it broke even. Part of our problem, we were supposed to go early in the summer, and because we were TriStar, we did not have the greatest distribution, so we were not in the greatest theaters. And the other movie that TriStar distributors came out with that summer was Rambo, and Rambo was like a huge hit. And so the distributor didn't want to pull it from theaters to bring out volunteers. So we got pushed back to uh, August. We got pushed back to like the end of the summer. And I think that 
that hurt it a little bit, but it it broke even, and for whatever reason, I don't quite understand it, but you know, for whatever reason, it does great on television. It always has. Uh, HBO still runs it. Thirty year old movie, they still run it. Uh, it ran. It got big ratings when it was on ABC. A lot of stations that have it in their film library will play it during sweeps. You'll see it an awful lot during sweeps. So, so for whatever reason, uh, Volunteers uh, does very well on TV, which is great because how many other movies from 1985 uh, ever show up anywhere these days? Yeah, you know, and Tom yeah, Hanks right. himself has a lot of movies um, like Turner and Hooch and the man with the red shoe and stuff like that and money pit and things that you rarely see anymore. Yeah. Man with one red shoe is the same year. And it's, I mean, it's also a guilty pleasure of mine, but yeah, nobody talks about that one at all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people still remember when um, uh, Washington state was in the Rose bowl and ESPN on, um, on sports center that night was, you know, playing the highlights and everything. And they were talking about seeing Tom Tuttle from Tacoma in the stands, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and in at Washington state, it's like, needless to say, huge, <laughs> you know, they, they, they play um, scenes from it uh, on their jumbotron during football games and things. Uh, so, yeah. So it, so it you know it it was not a it was not a huge hit. But you probably see volunteers uh, on TV more than you see Splash. Yeah, I'll bet. I I would bet that's true. Which was a big hit. Yeah. So. Right. Right. Well, maybe it's this one doesn't feel Splash might. I don't know if it feels more dated, but this one is a period piece, so maybe that gives it the flexibility of not feeling like it's you know it's it's as dated. Yep. Yep. That's always a benefit. I yeah. know. My my partner bumped into uh, Julia Roberts uh, at a function, and um, he, he mentioned to her that he had written Volunteers, and she started quoting lines. <laughs> So. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've I I'm I'm going to give it even more of a chance. It was definitely on okay, on uh, Andy's guilty pleasure list, although it fails completely the the criteria of guilty pleasure because he a gets way uh, he gets pleasure that he does not feel bad about. <laughs> and right. so that it totally feels like my guilty pleasure. You want to hear you mentioned in your blog post. How do they talk about films that they that they don't like? I, go to the following week where we did my guilty pleasure under the cherry moon. I feel like crap for liking that movie. I, it's terrible. Uh-huh. And and yet it's that that meets the, the, the bar. So anyway, uh, Ken Levine, uh, man, thank you so much for your time, for jumping through the technical hurdles, for uh, for being a part of this. We sh- we absolutely appreciate you uh, reaching out to us and and uh, giving us your um, your wisdom today. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure, guys. Enjoy your show. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'll Ken. talk to you, uh, mannequin too. Well, hey, be you know, before before we let out. <laughs> Before we let you go, where would you like us to send people? What are you working on right now? Anything we should uh, we should let people know your next big thing? You know, send them. I, I wrote a an autobiography. I wrote a memoir of growing up in the '60s uh, in in LA, um, and it's kind of a humorous memoir. So send it to Amazon and, and and get one of my books. There's that, and I wrote a comic novel called Must Kill TV, which is about a network president who, in order to keep his big star happy has to kill his girlfriend. <laughs> I'll definitely set him there. You know, nice, I, yeah. I, I do have this one uh, one question that I can't believe I didn't ask earlier, but I feel I, it would be remiss if I didn't. What's going on with Natalie Wood? Oh, I've just always loved Natalie Wood. Um, and, you know, when I have a blog post, I try to have a, a picture or two that is apropos. And sometimes I really can't think of a picture that really fits. So what do you do? And um, I just post a picture of Natalie Wood. I just keep posting <laughs> Natalie Wood pictures. As, and, as you do. <laughs> uh, I was in love with Natalie Wood when when I was a kid. 
and um, I'm still obsessed with uh, with her death. And uh, so, yeah, I just have this sort of Natalie Wood fixation. It's normal, isn't it? Totally. There's nothing wrong with that. Totally. Who yeah, am I to judge? Totally. I look at that. This is. I go to your site for my Natalie Wood fix now. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ken Levine. Uh, you can find him at uh, kenlevine.blogspot.com. His blog is fantastic. Uh, and uh, definitely head over to Amazon. You can find all his books on his website. But uh, grab uh, The Me Generation by Me, Growing Up in the 60s, uh, from Amazon.com. Ken Levine, thanks so much for your, your time today. Thank you, guys. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.